So, good morning, everybody. It's Richard Bobson here until midday today as Lessons in Love by Level 42. On today's A Story to Tell, we've got Hannah Wilson. She's going to be coming up shortly after the break. We're going to be talking about being a consultant and specialising in D, E and I. And we'll talk to you all about what that means as we go on. And here is one for Hannah. She loves a bit of Aretha. So here's Think. Every last second of Think by Aretha Franklin. So today on the Storyteller, as I just mentioned, we've got Hannah Wilson, who's a leadership and development consultant, coach and trainer. She specialises in DE&I, which is diversity, equity, I believe that's right, and inclusion. So Hannah, welcome along. How are you today? I'm great. And that was a great tune to get me ready for the it show. Is. Come a bit closer to the microphone for me. We'll, bring, we'll take it that way for you. There we go. Hopefully we can hear you better now. So how are you today? Yeah, really well, thank you. Good, good, good. Uh, yeah, that should be okay for that. Um... Cool. So tell us about what you do then. Who are you? Who am I? Okay, who am I and what do I do? Um, I spend my time these days working virtually quite a lot of the time. So I left um, working in schools as a school leader four years ago. I run my own business. I consult and I train and I coach leaders, um, predominantly in education, but also in other sectors. And as you mentioned, I'm really passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. So I spend a lot of time thinking about, talking about and training about that topic in particular. Amazing. And uh, and how are things going for you? Pretty busy. Pretty busy. So this week I'm working in Brazil from the comfort of my office in Bath. I was going to say, is, uh, <laughs> if you're in Brazil, you've got a long journey ahead of you. Yeah, five sessions in Sao Paulo via, right. via Zoom, um, working with two um, international schools over there. Okay. So is it, as you say, it's mainly schools that you work in, is it? Yeah, I, mean, I do work with charities and other organisations, but there's such a massive schools market and there's such a need for this conversation that we're pretty busy just supporting that sector at the moment. Okay, so tell us kind of on a day-to-day basis then. So you're working in Brazil at the moment. What type of thing do you actually kind of teach them? So um, the training has different ways of approaching it. So we're quite often thinking about um, the culture of our workplace, representation within our workplace, um, the kind of the belonging within the curriculum. What can we do to make a, a school, a workplace more inclusive, not just only for the pupils and their parents and carers, but also for the staff? Quite often the staff get overlooked. Okay. So it's, so a lot of schools will come to us and say, well, we, we want to do some work with the children. And we're like, well, what about staff? Because if hmm. you're not looking after your staff, then they can't look after your children. Um, so it's a it's a very nebulous conversation okay um and different organizations will join at different places so there's not like a, a a one right path um and then what i what i do is i curate a lot of series and a lot of programs where we have a series of conversations over time because one conversation isn't gonna sort it no you're here for two hours today we're gonna work <laughs> out how, how much of a conversation we're gonna have which is uh, i'm looking forward to so so you kind of specialise in leadership. Is it for both sexes or do you specialise in one or the other? So, so leadership for me, um, my journey was 20 years in schools. So right. I've, I've worked my way up the ladder when it comes to the school structure and to the um, kind of the school system. But leadership's leadership. I think leadership works cross sector. And I read a lot of um, texts and thought leaders outside of education and think about how does that then get applied to an educational kind of context. Yeah. So... 
I guess like leadership is what I lead with. That's my kind of my my main thing. But the leadership of certain things is what I'm passionate about. So the leadership of culture, the leadership of the curriculum, the leadership of um, staff, mental health and well-being. I think it's it's the kind of what's your niche within the more generalistic term of, of leadership. Okay. There's, I say, there's lots of different ways of being a leader as well, isn't there? There's no one size fits all. Well, there isn't, but quite often the mould has been cut in a certain way. Okay. So a lot of my work is around supporting leaders to lead in an authentic way, um, leaders to break the mould because the mould often is about conformity and uniformity and not about sort of like you bringing yourself. Um, I have often been like the only woman in quite a lot of teams and how I lead is very differently to some of my male counterparts so challenging perhaps some of the stereotypes particularly gender stereotypes about leadership but then I do a lot during people don't know because of my voice but I'm white I do a lot of work supporting um leaders leaders of color thinking about what does it mean for them to lead and, and kind of the the contradictions and the hypocrisy sometimes about what might be a compliment for me as a white woman and what might be a criticism for a peer who's a black woman who's leading in the same way. So I unpack quite a lot of that as well. And it must be very difficult to kind of get that balance right. Um, you know, I'm I'm a white middle-aged man now and classically white middle-aged men have run run the world in lots of ways and I'm, I'm hoping that's changing. Boy, it's changing. Um, I don't think it's changing quick enough. I think the pandemic was an interesting moment in time, wasn't it? That when we look at the countries who navigated the pandemic the most effectively, they all had female heads of state. Okay. Which says quite a lot about the leadership that we needed, the kind of the compassion perhaps we needed at that moment in time. But then we, uh, during, I don't want to get too much into politics, particularly as dad's <laughs> listening. We're, we're um, not a political station, <laughs> I'd like to point that out. But, Jean, if we think about the, uh, the current government, you could say that we've got more diversity than ever before in hmm. the current cabinet. I'm not sure how inclusive some of that diversity actually is. Not sure how well it's going for them. Well, but, uh, indeed, indeed. We look at some of the stuff that's on my Twitter feed from this week and the political parties. So, uh, it's, it's that, isn't it? It's, it's thinking not only like the kind of the visible representation of leadership, but also the embodiment of it. And between this whole idea of who are, who are we and what, who we are and what we do, often we get a little bit bogged down in the technicalities of the what we do, hmm. but it's the awareness of who we are when we're doing what we're yeah. doing. Um, and I, I do a lot of um, training actually on courageous conversations. Think helping leaders think about the conversations they should be having and the conversations they're often avoiding. Okay. And helping them to prepare for the conversations that often in our head are difficult, tricky. So, what would be a classic conversation then that leaders avoid? So, I have the pleasure of running my own company, mm-hmm. and I'm asking this on a personal level because uh, I. I'm not one for confrontation at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I will often duck out of things if I can. So what would be classic conversations that people avoid? Um, giving people some honest feedback. Okay. So if I, I'll give you a tangible example. When I um, had just become a vice principal, deputy head, um, I had quite a difficult member of staff who I was line managing, who had been difficult for, for a decade, but allowed to be difficult for a decade. Right. And I had a very candid conversation with her about how I was experiencing her and it was a bit of a breakthrough moment for her because no one had ever given her feedback before okay so I think one one of the things I try to unpack in the sessions is that a lot of people think that being kind is not giving people difficult feedback I think it's unkind yeah because it's it's the classic thing isn't it of the um, 
unconsciously incompetent. Mm-hmm. And if you're unconsciously incompetent, you've no idea that you're doing it wrong. And then mm. somebody says, you're doing it wrong. And you go, ah, and then you can start work on being consciously competent. Absolutely. I actually use that pyramid in my training. Um, and it's, it's, it's about consciousness. Um, and it's about becoming more conscious of, of how we're being seen and how we're being received. Um, and Brene Brown talks about it a lot, doesn't she? Like, we can't control how other people see us and interpret us but we can control how we receive and see and interpret them mm. and it's just having that awareness piece I think quite often we're very aware of others but our self-awareness needs a bit of work I, I think you're absolutely right on that now we have the classic scenario again I mentioned earlier that um, a lot of companies are run by men mm-hmm. middle-aged white men mm-hmm. is the classic thing um, how's that as a as a female or yourself which we'll, we'll state that you are um, how how do you feel about all of that? Okay, so it's an interesting one because you can't see how tall I am on, on no. the radio. So I'm six foot one. Yeah. So I think my height has actually aided me in navigating quite a lot of masculine spaces in my career. I've worked in a lot of boys' schools where the boys are quite tall. Hmm. Um, so my physical presence has, so has helped me. And I'm very aware of some of my female peers being half my size, half my height. They have to work on a lot harder sometimes okay. to navigate that leadership, to be treated equally. Um, I think there's some cultural things that come with having a male heavy or also let me add masculine heavy because mm-hmm. I think you can have a female leader who leads in a masculine way as well as a male leader who leads in a masculine way. So I think there are things to um, to disrupt and dismantle. I think we really need to think about the kind of the culture of the workplaces that we need and that we want. And I think the pandemic did disrupt that quite a lot. It made yeah. us think about working in a more flexible way. And that's another topic I speak about a lot. We've got the new flexible working bill coming in September. And teaching in particular, we lose hundreds of thousands of teachers every year who want to work flexibly. Yeah. When you look at why they're not working flexibly, it's often the chair of governors, the head teacher, who is declining the application to work flexibly, who are often men. Yeah. Or the barrier is the timetabler who's often a man. Okay. So if we had more women in some of those positions, reviewing that application to work flexibly, would we then have more women being retained in the sector? Mm-hmm. And would we have more flexible timetables to enable people to and work you, flexibly? And if you think about the cost of training somebody to get to that same level of experience, it's enormous. So yes, in some ways you may take a hit in the organisation and the, you know, it might not run so smoothly because you're having to be flexible, um, but in the long term, it's actually going to be much more cost effective. Absolutely. Like, it costs us to recruit. So if we spent the same money on the recruitment drive as we did on the retention drive, we'd be retaining people who are actually more experienced. Mm. So, between, I think the statistic is we, we lose 250,000 qualified teachers every year. Wow. Women, 30 to 39 with children. Yeah. Who want to work flexibly. But what we then do is throw money at the adverts and the training of new training teachers yeah. who then leave in a few years because they want to have children like like when you step back and look at it it's ridiculous and like what can we do differently to actually stem that and to, and to retain people but also to re-engage people because flexible working is often um, a, a retention tool rather than a recruitment tool okay if we actually recruit it differently train differently we'd end up with a more flexible workforce yeah. as well yeah no, that's fair enough um now the other part that's just coming out recently is the uh, wonderful world of companies now are having to publish their gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, it's 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 um, glaringly obvious um, the kind of the discrepancy, the disparity, and particularly in sectors like mine, in education or in health, where you've got a female heavy 
demographic. Yeah. Um, the gender pay gap in schools is shocking. Right. Um, and it's really interesting. Every International Women's Day in March, um, you have all these schools and all these trusts and all these organisations celebrating the work they're doing for gender equality. And then the gender pay bot calls them out mm. for the percentage gap that their staff um, aren't being paid. So it is, it is something to really look at. Um, and it is about creating equity and opportunity. Um, I mean, if we think about why the gender pay gap exists, quite often it comes down to confidence to actually negotiate at the moment of offer. Yeah. So there's research about men never just accepting the offer and negotiating a little bit more, and women just being grateful for the opportunity and accepting it. So from okay. the get-go, someone at the start of their career so is that's already more of, a few behind. That's, that's more of a culture thing mm-hmm. as much as anything, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, I got testosterone, Ur. it's not that at all, it's just purely... A culture thing. It's societal. It's how we how we get brought up. And yeah. like I was brought up by two self employed parents. We always taught money. I always had a Saturday job, so I'm quite literate, I guess, when it comes to negotiating. I've always negotiated, but I'm quite an anomaly. Hmm. Um, I do a lot of work supporting women leaders and negotiating the contract, the salary they need now. But really, what we need to do differently is how we train the girls in our schools to have yeah. that conversation. So I quite often do like six form talks because there's there's a lot of um, inequities from the start of people's careers boys and girls going to university, girls outperforming the boys, but straight away the boy gets paid more than the girl in their entry-level job. So there is definitely something cultural societal there for us to dismantle. For me personally, I can't actually understand it. Um, I know it seems a really strange thing. I'm, I'm 48 years old, um, so I've grown up in a world where actually pen- gender pay gap was real and it was very advertised and it was, yes, you're a woman, so therefore you get paid less. I run a company, I, it doesn't even cross my mind that I would pay a woman less than a man for doing the same job. I just, mm. I can't understand it. Well, there's a couple of things that um, perhaps perpetuate the problem. So when an advert for a job has a pay range on it, but then when we ask someone in the application form to put on their current salary, mm. there's automatically a bit of a gap there. So, okay. so we might be offering someone a job and giving them a few grand pay rise, but they're actually then being underpaid compared to their counterpart. So it, that level of the playing field, I think it's Google, and I, I went to a panel years ago where someone had just got a job at Google, a woman, and they gave her like a 15 grand pay rise on starting because they w- didn't want her to be earning less than her male counterparts. Yeah. She was like, goodness me, that's like a massive pay rise. I was talking to a CEO of a, of a group of schools who's female, and she was saying she'd offered out like five headship roles that week. And all the women just said thank you and all the men started negotiating right and she had to take her co hat off on the call in the middle of office of a job and saying you have to, you have got to negotiate with me yeah i cannot be a ceo when my where i have a pay gap between my heads but i can't just offer you more money you need to, you need to initiate the conversation <laughs> okay now i'm going to be a ceo again is there any questions you'd like to ask me so so th- there are some behavioral changes attitudinal changes there for us to have a look at as well okay well amazing we're going to talk and have a little break for some music and some ads and uh, when we come back we're going to be talking about your school history as mm. well and how you got to where you are today so we'll be right, right back after this the nursery hilperton pride sponsor of the morning show they have tumbling down tumbling down and there's another one of carol king welcome back hannah great great music choices so far Thank you very much. It's almost like you've chosen them yourself, <laughs> <laughs> which is all good. Right. We're going to talk now about you becoming a school head. Is it headmistress? Head, what, 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 head teacher is the head gender teacher. neutral one. 
See, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange thing. I was chatting to somebody the other day about, you know, whether we talk about race or gender or anything like that. And, and a lot of more mature people, and I'll include myself in that, quite often get the terminology wrong, not through any ill feeling, just because you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a DEI expert, that must be quite frustrating, I'm guessing. No, no, not frustrating. I have a lot of empathy. Okay. And, and my dad will say to me regularly, dad's a, dad's a retired um, farmer down in North Devon, and he'll say, like, who gives us the update of the which words we can and can't use? Do you mean, because it's hard enough when you're in the sector to see the language changing and to keep on top of it because it's yeah. ever iterating and evolving. And then when you're out of that space, like, who's publishing the kind of the public service announcement that we no longer use this word and this is now the correct terminology so my recommendation is you just you listen okay and i have to listen into the spaces i'm in because even when i think i know the right terminology different groups might use different words in different ways particularly around things like race yeah um so and 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 I, i also give permission when i'm running training say what you think is the right word and I will give you some gentle challenge if, if there's a better word I think you could have used. Yep. So I'll give you an example. Lots of people talk about like normalising diversity. We, we would say that a better word to use is usualising. Okay. Because by talking about normalising diversity, you're suggesting there's a normal and an abnormal. Right. And the normal is white and male and straight, and the abnormal is all the other identities. Everything so just else. By, yeah, just by talking about usualising, let's usualise diversity, let's usualise representation, the word has a slightly different nuance or frame. I'm learning something every day. <laughs> every day is a school day. Talking of schools, beautiful. Um, so you were a head teacher. How long were you a head teacher for then? I was a head teacher for three years, but a year before that, I was preparing to be a head teacher. So like, I've often seen that when people are preparing, I, they're actually doing the job and not being paid for it. Yeah, I was, I was a deputy head in London and I was about to become a head teacher in Oxford and I was driving up to Oxfordshire in the evenings to do talks to prospective parents. Like, and because I was a head teacher in quite a unique role that the school was being built. Okay. So I didn't have a building. I didn't have any staff. Right. Any parents, any students, any curriculum, any policies. Okay. It's quite a lot of work to do. That is, that literally is a blank sheet of paper mm-hmm. and off you go and design mm. your school. That must have been quite exciting as well, though. It was really exciting. Exciting and daunting. At times, a little bit overwhelming. Quite liberating. Yeah. Um, we only started with Year 7, so we were a school that filled in every oh, year. Oh, OK. So we only had 120 students in our first year of opening, but we had 55 classrooms. So that was an interesting challenge in itself. Like, yeah. That idea of like um, champagne ideas and lemonade budget. Hmm. I had a massive building and I had a very small team yeah. and we had a lot of space and just trying to manage the space with that number of students and staff was quite difficult. Okay. And so you became a head teacher, but you were in schools for a lot longer before that. Yeah, I spent 20 years working um, in schools as a teacher, a middle leader, a senior leader. Most of my career I spent in South London and Croydon, working in very challenging schools mm-hmm. and then I moved up to Oxfordshire to be a head teacher which bit it, of Oxfordshire then I was in Didcot Didcot the wonderful world of Didcot mm. where the power station used to be I used mm. to live in Didcot did so you now I did well it was a challenging place to live and work <laughs> in a different way shall we say <laughs> it was my, my house used to be 67 metres from the main railway line oh wow and uh, yeah when we were sitting in, in our front room watching, uh, watching TV uh, every few minutes or so the whole house would shake I can imagine and, uh, and I'm sure you know that the Dickot has burgeoned yes. they've built the biggest housing development in Europe yeah. four and a half thousand houses and commissioned four new schools so I was the head of the brand new uh-huh. secondary school the first co-ed school in the town okay absolutely amazing so were you particularly in the uh, subject that you taught for your time 
I am an English teacher by trade. Okay. I've also taught a lot of drama and media studies. Okay. Um, English was an interesting one for me. I loved reading as a kid, um, but I didn't always enjoy English lessons. Um, they're a bit dry for me. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I went to A-levels and had an amazing English teacher and discovered a whole different genre. Like, I, I love reading like African-American female literature. That's my kind of my, my genre. Okay. So I then went to university and I did post-colonial literature because I didn't want to study all the dead white men. Fair enough. Fair enough, indeed. It's kind of <laughs> led you on that path, it has. hasn't it? It, it? it was the foundation, I guess, for me thinking about representation within the curriculum. Now, you must have had over your time... So, I say, I've got four children. Three of them are almost grown up now. And in their time at, uh, at their secondary school, I think I saw four head teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of those head teachers had a different way of working. Mm-hmm. And for the children themselves, that was sometimes confusing. But equally for the staff... That must also be quite confusing. So how did you feel in your time as a teacher, first of all? And then how did you then develop that as being a head teacher? Yeah, it's a good question. That whole idea of like your professional identity, but then your personality and what you're passionate about, what motivates you. So I actually spent six years in the same school and that's why I cut my teeth, I guess, and was a middle leader, became a senior leader. And I had quite a, a maverick head teacher at that time who I could never replicate. He was so different to me. Um, an older northern guy, very candid, but I always knew I stood with him. Like, what what made him maverick? Oh, he just didn't follow any rules. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I quite respected. We were working in trust. The trust were relatively new. But he knew his stuff. And yeah. he was all about simplicity and stripping back and streamlining. Um, and he was very straight talking, which intimidated a lot of people. I just love that. I love black and white. I love like knowing where I stand. Mm. And I, I had a real soft spot for him. And he, and he really looked after me. And he then um, set me up for a promotion at our sister school because he was going to go and be the, oh, be the executive head. Apologies for that. He's um, bashing the microphone <laughs> up and everything. I need to stop gesticulating. It's, um, the, it's the Italian <laughs> in you, I'm sure. It's like bella bella. <laughs> so he uh, was going to lead a second school and ask me to go over there. Um, but then he retired and like left me in this second school with a very different style of head teacher. Yeah. And, and I found it really difficult because I, d- I didn't know where I stood. And I didn't have the same level of kind of candor or I guess like trust or respect, I guess, with that and I imagine. So, so it's not only when you're the student you can get confused, when you're one of the members of staff and you're used to working in a particular way yeah. and then a different personality comes in. It can be quite disorientating for the staff as well. Yeah, and it must be really difficult because, say, you go down one route and you think, right, I'm set. And as you say, a lot of people don't stay in schools that long. Mm. Quite often you will move around schools Mm -hmm. and have to learn that different way Mm. of their different leadership skills. Um, But moving around can be good. So so I moved every three years for my first few roles. I think three years is a nice amount of time because, like, the first year you're new, you don't know anything. Second year consolidating. Third year can be in show impact. And then I usually they moved on to either another promotion internally or, or externally but when you are like I, I coach a lot of women who have been almost trapped in their role in their school for quite a long time usually mm. because they've had children had maternity leaves and come back and it's actually really hard to almost evolve or or change who you are over time when people have an expectation of you okay so it's almost it's almost easier sometimes to change context to then show a different dimension to who you are 
Yeah. But there's research that shows that women are more likely to get headship in their own school because they're an own entity, and men are more likely to get promotion externally. Okay. So another barrier there to be aware of. Yet, yet another barrier. Now, when you were head teacher, did you actually have much control over the curriculum? I've got a second part of this. It's so. a good question. So, dependent. Like, I think the school system is so complex now about whether or not schools are maintained and held to account by the locality or they are an academy and they're held to account by a multiple academy trust or a MAT. So I've spent most of my career working in MATs where dependent on the culture of the MAT and how the MAT infrastructure works, you often have some very senior executive leaders who are in charge of the curriculum. Okay. And sometimes they're generalists and they're looking at the curriculum as a whole. But in one of the MATs I worked in, we had teams for each subject. So a team of science specialists, a team of math specialists, a team of MFL specialists. And they very much influenced, controlled, led the curriculum across like 40 schools. Hmm. So... I think one of the frustrations sometimes in education is you want autonomy and you want to be empowered, but it's quite top-heavy. It's quite hierarchical a lot of the time. Yeah. Whereas my colleagues who work in independent schools, you have a lot more freedom a lot of the time about what you want to teach and how you want to teach it. So the curriculum piece is one of the bits that needs the most work when it comes to the UK education system. Like, if I'm being really honest, I think the the kind of the curriculum my dad got taught, that I got taught, that my nephew and niece now get taught, hasn't changed that much in the last 30 years. Needs a bit of an update. I I was thinking about this, which is why we're going to chat about this, Mm. if I'm honest with you, because again, I've seen the subjects that my children uh, have gone through, and they're now two of them adults, Mm -hmm. and I, I look at it and I think, you're missing so many actual useful skill sets that you don't know anything about accounting as in your house accounting just life something skills. like that life skills mm. it's, it needs to be for me personally a topic taught in schools mm. no i absolutely agree and it's there's quite a lot of pushes about the gaps in the curriculum and what should be included so one of the big ones that's being campaigned for is like climate justice where mm. does where does climate justice get placed in the curriculum there's been a massive reform over the last few years when it comes to sex education and how we talk about and teach about relationships and, and personal health um, but it can often be quite um, subjective about how somebody interprets that and then teaches it. Yeah. So the curriculum is one of our biggest bits of work, but it's also one of th- one of the pieces of work that takes the most time and energy and resource. Mm. And schools are really time poor, energy poor, resource poor. So having the space to do that reset, because it does, you can't just change curriculum overnight. So some of the schools doing DEI work with us, they want to specifically um, look at diversification in the curriculum. But we say, like, you need to be realistic. Let's do one year group or one subject. Yeah. And then, yeah, well, that's t- that'll take us 10 years. Well, it might take you 10 years. But at least it'll be done well. At least it'll become embedded. Yeah. Um, because there's also the financial um, repercussions of that. that f- so for example, teaching English, if you want to diversify the curriculum and you want to replace plays, poetry, prose, it's actually quite a massive investment mm. to buy year group sets or class sets of, of new books so it has to be planned strategically over time as well i always think back to you know when we're talking about planning and going far into the future um i remember it must have been 15 20 years ago when uh, i think it's saint james's park uh, the england national football team they had their brand new facilities um and it was all built and everybody said it's cost an enormous amount of money um what's the point type thing and i remember looking at that going it's not going to have any impact for the next 10, 15 uh-huh. years. However, in 10, 15 years' time, 
wow, we're going to be doing a lot better. And then you see how we've been doing in the last few years. That's not a coincidence. Absolutely. I think the word there is legacy, isn't it? We talk a lot about the legacy we want to build and create, but often that legacy is going to outlive us and we're not going to see the impact of the work we're doing now. We'll see it in a decade. And that's quite a hard thing sometimes. I think we're in this culture of wanting instant gratification and wanting validation and wanting to see that our hard work and our labour is having impact, but we're not always going to necessarily see that now i can look back at some of the schools i i, I, I taught and led at, at 10 years ago and i can see my work in their ofsted reports yeah so i wasn't in the building for the ofsted but i know that my work led to some of that impact and i think it's you have to p- perhaps look at it that way sometimes and that must be very difficult as a head teacher knowing you're probably going to be in post for three to five years i think is that about the average for head teachers i don't, I don't know what the average is actually like i think my three years might seem short but in a startup school it felt like 10 years yeah i aged a lot in those three years <laughs> It was, it was a challenging time for you. <laughs> Quite grey. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what the average um, like life expectancy of somebody no. serving as a head is. But well, let, five say, years is quite a normal one because you see a whole like yeah. 11 to 16 through. And then you kind of have that moment of going, I'm now doing stuff, as you say, that I'm not going to see the benefit of. Mm. And that must be quite difficult when you've got those short-term goals of making sure the buildings aren't going to fall down, which obviously we've had fairly recently, to the medium-term goals of making sure your year 11 students and 13 are going to succeed in their their exams, and then thinking, right, what's going to happen to the prime, the reception children, mm. you know, if you're a secondary school head teacher? Mm. You know, well, I've got to be thinking about those people right now. And that's, if you're looking at your lists quite a long way down your list yeah absolutely like my, mine was always about the people though like i i know that i've done a good job when i see where my young people who i taught and led where they are in 10 20 years time and and how they're contributing to society i think part of my legacy has also been how many head teachers i've created through the team that i recruited and trained so seeing my staff go on and then leave their own schools but taking quite a lot of the ideas we worked on together so i think it's it's been able to to see that wider impact of how you influence through others i remember when i left one of my um parents reached out and just said to me um we absolutely loved having you as a head teacher you're probably like 10 years too early for the school Mm. for the town um but other organizations will be very lucky to have you and you were almost too confined working in one school like it's going to be great to see the impact you're going to have across other schools so that was quite nice feedback from one of my mums who really got me oh that sounds lovely um unfortunately you did stop becoming a head teacher and we're going to move on to what you actually did after that have a quick break again back very shortly with hannah So it's Richard Bovesan here. We're here till midday today with Hannah Wilson. She's a leadership expert. And we're going to talk about coaching and collaboration now. Okay, so tell me, Hannah, you can be a leader and then you're a coach of leaders. So how did you get to that point? So I am a massive advocate that every leader needs a coach. Okay. Um, and you don't often get access to one because it's quite expensive. And I think in some industries there's the money for it, but in education often isn't. So... I started coaching informally when I was assistant head deputy head, just supporting other people really. And that distinction, the difference between mentoring and coaching, mentoring is often showing someone how to do something, whereas coaching is helping them find their own answers to something. So really it's about being a good listener and asking lots of questions. And I'm quite a curious person. Um, But I was really supported myself by a couple of amazing coaches who helped me get to deputy headship, navigate it, get to headship, navigate it. And it's really about having that kind of that sacred space, I guess, to unpack things and to explore 
what's going on for you and 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 what's working what's not working and how you want to do things differently or how you want to be and it, and it's done often off-site and in a kind of sort of safe space and it helps you then to go back and I guess to put it into practice so you're you're based in Bath aren't you mm-hmm. but do you have to be based in Bath to take use no, of your services I, 99% of my is done on Zoom the wonderful <laughs> world of Zoom <laughs> um, because I because I left Headship just as we went into the pandemic um, and I trained to coach and a lot of my clients are actually international um, or across the country and and it actually works really well because there's a safety about doing it online and I always encourage my coaching clients to be at home so quite often um, if they're a full-time employee I'll say why don't you take like go home for the Thursday afternoon the Friday morning whatever it is um, so they've got some quiet headspace to actually have the conversation because particularly being coached in the school schools are so frenetic you've often got the phone going the radio going the door going yeah. um, and you get interrupted and then your thought flows kind of like goes so at the moment i'm coaching about 40 people was that four zero four zero wow that's um, a lot it's a lot but most of them are on a monthly cycle okay um so in other industries you might get coached for like fortnightly but in schools the budget tends to be on a monthly basis most people have between five and ten coaching sessions okay which then get distributed across the academic year right i was going to say how does it work so they they literally come to you and say i want to be coached Sometimes it's them. Right. I often get people saying, can you coach someone for us? As in almost performance management? Or? Well, it's a, it's a tricky one. So sometimes it's because there's potential um, and they want to support somebody. So I've worked with a couple of quite prominent independent schools now where I might have coached like 15 of their staff over the last three years. Um, and they obviously set aside a budget each each year. Um, and sometimes it's looking at who's the next person who's aspiring to get a promotion. Um, but sometimes it is people who have hit a bit of a, a rocky patch. Yeah. I push back a little bit on that. Coaching being used as an intervention that's mm. remedial, um, that for me, actually, that should be the line manager having that courageous conversation. Yeah. So sometimes I might suggest that I'm coaching the wrong person. <laughs> so we're going back to, again, that awkward conversation mm. that the managers don't want to have. Yeah. So let's just pay a coach to come and sort out the problem. Like, not on my watch. When I was a head teacher, I would have been embarrassed to yeah. outsource some of those things. But, but sometimes there's... There's not the empowerment or the or the skills there, I guess, all the time. Um, so I am coaching a couple of people who are in quite tricky situations at work. But on the whole, I'm coaching people who are really busy and really stretched and are looking after everyone else. And they just need a little bit of yeah. respite for themselves, really. Okay. And if somebody wanted to get in contact, we haven't mentioned the website or anything mm-hmm. yet. How, they, how could they get in contact? So I've actually got two websites. I've got a website for my coaching and my leadership, which is just Hannah-Wilson. Um, and the coaching for DEI is Diverse Educators. Okay. And we offer coaching through both. So the coaching through the Hannah Wilson website, um, and I know some some of the audience would have met um, Rachel McGill before. So I'm part of Rachel's um, coaching framework, which is called Resilient Leaders Elements. So all of my coaching associates on that website have all done RLE. Right. So we have a, a consistent language and a, a common kind of approach. So it's not just me who, who can coach you, because sometimes people want someone to coach them who perhaps has a shared lived experience or shared identity. So I've got 12 um, associates who work with me on that website. Okay. And then on diverse educators, coaching is quite a white space a lot of the time. A lot of white women like myself, particularly those people who want to work part-time and their schools won't let yeah. them, they become coaches. So on diverse educators, we're, const- we're consciously curating a diverse database of coaches um, so that when schools, trust localities are offering coaches, particularly to their head teachers, their head teachers can see themselves in the coaching yeah. directory. And I know you specialise in women. Is it just women you coach? No, I coach um, a lot of different people, but I would say that 
I don't coach very many straight white men. Do you not? No. Because I coach a lot of women and then I guess other people in minoritized identities or um, protected characteristics then find me. So I do coach quite a lot of gay men, a lot of black men. Um, So I guess there's still a thread there about supporting people to navigate perhaps some of those um, systems. Okay. We're going to have another little break for the news. When we come back, we're going to be talking about DEI. D-E-I, I'll say it nice and clearly. Otherwise, it just sounds like I'm going D-I. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after the hour with Hannah Wilson. Love a bit of Lauren Hill. There's do what that thing. So if you have any questions for Hannah, then do email in at studio at radiobath.com or you can text Bath followed by your message to 80011. Welcome back, Hannah, for the second hour. Um, great to be here. Dad, don't email. Oh, come a bit close to the microphone again. You've drifted away. Sorry. That's all right. I'll bring it over for you. Oh, I think I've just bopped her on the nose. <laughs> It's there definitely we, close now. <laughs> it is definitely close now. Indeed it is. Right, so we're going to talk about DEI, okay, known in the trade. Okay, what is DEI? Tell everybody about it. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ah, diversity, equity, inclusion. Do you know, it really helps if I turn your microphone yeah, on. Yeah, I think it does, it does actually help. Yeah, so let me just replay that. DEI, Anna, tell me about it. <laughs> so diversity, equity, inclusion. So it's thinking about um, how those three different ideas um, interplay. So diversity being um, representation, thinking about um, who's in what role or who's in the room or who's in the curriculum, who's not and why. Um, equity, thinking about who's got access to those different spaces, what are the barriers, how can we find and remove those barriers. And inclusion is thinking about how are we intentionally including people. And that's the one that everyone thinks they do do. Okay. Everyone thinks they're inclusive. In what way? Um, if I asked any head teacher in the country, they would all say, yeah, I'm inclusive. Well, when you then look at the data of who they're recruiting, who they're retaining, who they're excluding, I would give some challenge about how inclusive are we actually being in an intentional way. Yeah. So quite quite often one of the problems around this work is that because we feel included, we assume that everyone else feels included. And there's this thing called the perception gap, which we need to kind of like find and address, that often the senior leaders, the governors, the people who are in the positions of power within a, within a, a workplace, um, their optics of their experience of the space is perhaps different to other people's and, it, and it's how you bring that awareness to that space that it might not be being experienced in the same way by other identity groups in particular so do you feel, feel like some places have like an inner circle almost or a boys club or a boys club <laughs> <laughs> outrageous that people might think that an inner circle yeah for sure like and, and i think not only an inner circle i'm not sure if you've read anything by matthew saeed but matthew saeed have, yeah, wrote lots, a great yeah. book called rebel ideas so introduce for those who don't know who matthew saeed is um, well matthew saeed what, what is his actual job title he's a table tennis player he was a table tennis he was player t- yeah very good as very well. good table tennis yeah. player um and he is a thought leader and a writer um and he's written quite a lot quite extensively not only about sports but also about leadership and the book that i uh, really resonated with me is rebel ideas and he Mm. he um basically writes this book where um, it's about thinking about diversity of thought 
and how we quite often find ourselves going back to the idea of the inner circle in a group think situation where we gravitate towards and we are more comfortable in a space where people think like us hmm. in brackets look like us exist like us but then that's quite a dangerous space to be because no one challenges yeah and actually we need uh, can i pronounce this word heterogeneous I'm spaces glad, rather, than, that. <laughs> rather than homogenous spaces Ho- homogeneity is when everyone's in the same group thinking the same way and you then have you can have those gaps because no one's seeing the problems or no one's seeing things differently whereas when you are a diverse group with diverse perspectives diverse lived experience diverse um thinking that brings a lot more creativity and innovation so yeah. when, you, when you look at things like the mckinsey report that compares um workplace culture and workplace success diverse teams outperform teams that aren't diverse mm. because they have a high level of productivity performance profitability i love the fact of being challenged and that that for me you know i've run a company for a long time um and again i try and surround myself with people that actually actively disagree with what i say um and i love that because a lot of people don't feel comfortable with that though. no i love it because mm. i was having a discussion let me make this right. Yes, discussion is the correct terminology for it. Um, about something last night, and um, we discussed it for about 10 minutes or so. And in the end, I wasn't right. And I'm absolutely fine by that. And the person that was right, I'm like, yeah, go for that. And this was a woman. And it wasn't a question of she was a woman, therefore it was, a, you know, that was why we were discussing it. She just happened to be a woman and she was right. Mm. And that's perfectly fine. Mm. You know, it's interesting when I talk about the irony that when I was an employee and I brought challenge it wasn't always received very well hmm. now I'm a consultant I get paid to be a critical friend people love my honesty and love my candor <laughs> love my challenge I haven't changed it's like the same person but the skill set is seen as either being problematic or now adding value yeah and that's an interesting um distinction I always go back to so I used to be in sales and I worked in quite a big company and again I was one of those really annoying people that I I could see that this was the right thing to do and I remember this one occasion going through seven different managers until I got the answer that I wanted. I never got promoted, which isn't a surprise, um, because I was just annoying to everybody. But mm. I didn't really care mm. because I think challenging the hierarchy is key. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a wire, okay? So a wire. A wire. Ex- I keep asking why until I understand. Oh, okay. and, and that's what I'm hearing there is that it's not just about challenge it's about curiosity sometimes mm. and once i understand something and i get it i will do it i will own it i will i will enliven it i will influence it but sometimes i just don't get why i'm being asked to do something no. and when i ask why it's not because i'm trying to be difficult i want to understand it and when someone can't articulate it to you they just say just do it that's not going to get my buy-in no so that like leads to then the work we do that another great book Sam Sinek's book Start With Why so Start With Why is the most watched TED Talk ever okay and he's got this really simplistic model called the golden circle why is in the middle how is in the kind of the outer circle and what is in the far circle and that he spent a lot of time looking at some of the biggest brands and organisations around the world and about who has the most powerful most influential messaging so Apple's a great example Mm -hmm. and his premise is that we often need with our what rather than our why the what is what we're doing and the why is why we're doing it. 
Yeah. And when we actually flip it and we invert it and we think about leading with our why, that's the hearts and minds piece. That's the hooking. That's the kind of getting people on board. So we use that model in all of our training that a lot of schools know they should be doing DEI work, but they can't articulate yeah. why they're doing it. And I, in, in our training, I'll talk about like you need your personal individual why, your professional why, a collective why, an institutional why, and we need to create some sort of alignment because when everyone can understand the why, they can understand how they're going to contribute to it and be part of it. When the why is not clear, why would anyone want to get involved? So let's go back to schools then and and the work that you do in there. Um, Let's think about if 100% was DEI was promoted perfectly in schools and zero was it never gets mentioned where are schools at at the moment and that's very difficult because i'm sure every school will be quite different but kind of that's a tricky question where would you feel it's at the moment Uh, as a country on average we'll put it at 25 percent. okay so we've got some schools are doing it really really well and some schools who are really committed to it and they've got a very like systematic approach to it we've then got patches around the country pockets where DEI is not even on their agenda they don't even know what the acronym is um, and they're the spaces that probably need to be doing the work the most Yeah. Um, but there's then you talked about priorities earlier on like there's also then there's so much going on it's such a busy sector that they might want to do it but they haven't got the capacity to do it Yeah. Um, so it feels so doing, I've been doing this work for five years full time and it's been interesting seeing the kind of the waves of schools getting on board and if you think about, like, I'm not sure if you know the adoption curve about how people get on board with change. Tell us about so it. So the adoption curve breaks down. Um, people have to be followed. It's a change model. So we have our um, innovators who are like the 2 to 3% of people who get it and get on board. You then have your early adopters, your early majority, your late majority and your laggards. So you can literally, for any change project in a, in a workplace, you can split your staff, your employees across those different sectors. But if we thought about the 27,000 state schools in the country and we split them across that our early adopters was two percent mm. okay so we had a very small percentage so innovators of people doing it straight away four or five years ago the early adopters are probably where we're at now but we're now moving into the early majority okay once you have those three components that's almost half of your demographic and then the late majority might jump on in the next couple of years the laggards are never going to get it they're only eight percent okay so if we had 92 percent of the change curve following us that's a massive majority. That would be a lot better than 25%. It would be. It would be. <laughs> now, the BBC were kind of hauled over the coals recently about their DEI. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I listen to quite a lot of radio shows, and for many years, if there were four panellists, there'd be four white middle-aged men. Um, it's not the same now. Um, how do you feel like big organisations like the BBC have coped with this? It's an interesting one, isn't it? So I, I used to teach a lot of media studies and um, 15, 20 years ago, doing media studies, teaching it, we looked a lot about um, representation and who was a, perhaps a news broadcaster. And there used to be that thing about the BBC had to speak the Queen's English. Yes, absolutely, There was darling. often white, middle-class, middle-aged people who had gone to a certain school. And then if you look at who now is doing the news, not only regional news, but also national yeah. news, we've got a, a lot more representation, not only in different races, genders, religions, but also different accents. Well, I go back to, uh, I've said this story a few times, not necessarily live on air, actually. Um, when I was in the RAF, there was an officer that came in and he was chatting away to us and he said, where do you think I'm from? And he had a voice very similar to mine. And everybody kind of gave loads of different answers and stuff. And then he went into his actual voice, which was, he was a Geordie. Mm. Um, but he wasn't allowed, mm-hmm. and this is back in the late 19, mm-hmm. 1990s, he wasn't allowed to speak in a Geordie accent in the RAF. So that's called code switching, 
when people are having to conform, going back to the idea of the mould. So we have a lot of people who are code switching all the time, where they are dressing in a particular way, speaking in a particular way, behaving in a particular way, because that's the expectation. Hmm. And there's a real emotional tax to that. It takes a lot of energy to not just be yourself, because you're thinking about how to speak rather than what you're saying. Going back to the BBC, though, like I know you're a massive dancer. Like Strictly Strictly is one of my favourite shows. Um, I know the BBC came under a lot of critique last series about... Was it too woke? Was there too much representation? Mm. People didn't want to see same-sex dancers. Um, and I think that's... I just find it staggering sometimes, the backlash from it. Because I think, actually, Strictly have done an amazing job when it comes to representation. To Absolutely. have limb-different dancers, to have a deaf dancer. Like, Rose just blew yeah. it out of the water, didn't she? Um, and to see same-sex representation on a mainstream Saturday night TV show, that sends such a powerful message to, to children, to, to adults... And I think I, I, I'm fascinated by the levels of discomfort. Yeah, I mean, I found it, you know, as a dancer myself, I, I, you know, we, we've taken out the gender now regarding, we call it lead and follow rather than men and ladies. Brilliant. Um, and the whole country is going down that route. It's mm-hmm. going to take quite a long time for mm. everybody to get there, but it will take a while. I was actually disappointed in the first same-sex men couple because the they were both gay. Mm. And that initially I was like, oh, that's... You know, a misassociation. Yeah. Then I saw it as a bridging gap, and then the next time they've done it, it's not that scenario, mm. and I find that much better. But I can understand why they did it. But mm. it's almost like they they were too afraid to jump too far. Mm. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of places have that problem. They're thinking, I'm here at the moment, and I want to jump over here, but I need to do these stepping stones first. And do you mean, it's about taking people with you. So I, I can't remember if I said it on air or off air that I've been doing this work in um, Sao Paulo recently. And it's a very conservative country. Hmm. Do you mean I've had to have a lot of pre-meets to the training to make sure there's cultural sensitivity about what I say and how I say it. Okay. They were really concerned I was going to use some of my imagery. So on my Diverse Educators website, we've got a lovely hero image. It's got nine colours on the floor to represent the nine protected characteristics. There are same-sex couples in that image. And the the owners of this school said, is, there, is it possible not to use that image in our training? Our community just aren't ready for it. Hmm. And we worry that if we force some of the issues, some of the imagery, some of the language and ideas too early, people will shut down and won't engage. So I think there's something about us being aware that there's fear and discomfort, meeting people where they are, challenging them, but challenging them with kindness and, yeah. and, and, and bringing people along on the journey um, it's, it's a tricky it's a tricky balancing act I suppose the way I look at it is that what you're trying to do in lots of ways is push people uphill mm-hmm. but if you put a cliff in front of them they can't reach the top yeah so that's kind of how I yeah. I would personally Good think metaphor. of that I, I deal in metaphors all the time. <laughs> my, my, I love phrases and my children always talk about, oh, here's another phrase. Here it goes again. Um, so having good DI in your companies or in your schools, what kind of benefits do you get from that? You get a much healthier, happier staff. Okay. Um, lower attention rates, higher attention rates, lower attrition rates, like I'm at wrong. Um, it, it really does like change the workforce um, culture um, and engagement. Um, and you will see the benefits. 
So it is about making, actually. And the irony about schools is that it's often all about the children, which is obviously a very important part of the work. But you can't be doing it at the expense of the staff. The staff are there as employees. So the culture in the staff room is as important as the culture in the classroom. And often we're just thinking about the classroom, but actually the staff room is important as well. And I suppose it's quite difficult to measure Mm. how successful Mm. this all is. So how would a school measure how successful their DEI is? Yeah, okay. Really good question. It comes up a lot around the metrics. So we are so obsessed with data in schools, Mm. but the data is often quantitative data about performance as opposed to qualitative data. And qualitative data is as as important. And what I mean by that is really the kind of the voice activity, staff voice, student voice, parent voice, and the feedback you're getting that is as important as the numbers and the kind of the the numbers in the spreadsheet. So we do a lot of work with our um, clients, with our schools, with our trusts about creating whatever you might call it, a DEI survey or belonging survey, which might go out once a year, twice a year, where you are getting raw data feedback. And it might, some of it might be quantitative, where you're asking people to give a percentage score of how comfortable they feel, their levels of belonging, levels of psychological safety, but equally some opportunity to say what's working, what's not working with some follow-up on how that data is then going to be used to then move things forward. Okay. Now, let's let's have a scenario that you're in charge of a company mm-hmm. and pretty much the area that you are in is predominantly white, mm-hmm. okay? And you want to have really good DEI. Mm-hmm. How much of a challenge is that? Because presumably most people that are coming in through the interviews and everything are going to be white. Yeah. And that must this be, one comes up a lot. Okay? It must be really difficult. So I can't tell you how many schools will say to me very apologetically, Hannah, we're not a very diverse school. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Of course you're a diverse school. What you mean is you're not a racially diverse school. What you mean is you are a white majority school. And that's a very important part of diversity, equity, inclusion, but it's only one of the nine protected characteristics. So what are, if you can run soon quickly, sure. the nine? Nine protected characteristics. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Hannah has no notes with her here whatsoever. <laughs> she knows all this off the top of her head, which is I amazing. I spend all day, every day talking about this, thinking about this. So we have to, I want to remind you that the Equality Act is from 2010. Okay. This is the current legislation. It needs updating. A little bit worried about the current government doing that, but I'm not going to say any more. So the nine protected characteristics as they stand. We have age, disability, gender reassignment. We have marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion and belief, sex and sexual orientation. So there's nine identity groups there, protected in law, protected from exclusion, discrimination, hate, etc. prejudice. So yes, we need to do work on race, but we also need to do work on the other eight as well. So if you are in a white majority space, which we know that Bath is, okay, yeah. if, you, if you're a, a, a company owner, a director in the local area, there are other things you can be doing to make your workplace as inclusive as possible. So using age as an example, we've got a massive spotlight in the country at the moment on the menopause. Hmm. So schools, like we have a high majority of women of a certain age working in the school system. So have you got a menopause policy in place? Mm-hmm. And make a massive difference to the, to the levels of engagement, productivity of a big, a big group of, of members Absolutely. of staff. Disability is another really big one. One in five people in the UK identify as being disabled. And we often, in schools, as a good example, we do so much in the schools around the children who are identified as being SCND. We don't do enough when it comes to the staff. Do we even know how many staff are dyslexic or neurodivergent? What can we do differently to support the staff who have an additional need, Mm. who often haven't disclosed they've got an additional need for the fear of the stigmatisation or the barriers that might be put in front of them if they disclose it? And it's amazing how many people still hide you know, what their, 
what their disability is, whether they are dyslexic, autistic, whatever it may be, they don't necessarily say, because as you say, they don't necessarily want people looking at them differently. Yeah, for, um, for fear of stigma. Absolutely. I mean, I did a, a whole section with a lady called Annette who came in and we talked about the menopause for two hours and it's still available on, a, uh, on the podcast, which is called Life Off the Stage, if you want that. And this will also be available as a podcast, by the way, uh, on Life Off the Stage, if you want to subscribe to that as well after the show. Um, and it's... It's so difficult for people that certainly are in the menopause and also surrounded by teenage children. That's a lot of hormones. A lot of hormones. So there's a there's a metaphor called wonky hormones. Wonky hormones. Okay, and there's go actually on. a book called Wonky Hormones where in a lot of family units and a lot of domestic mm. environments, you might have a parent, a mother going through the menopause simultaneously to the daughter <laughs> going through menstruation. And that is like a firework display <laughs> waiting to go off. So being aware of that and thinking about how there's actually two sets of hormones in the mix here and it really is a chemical reaction. Um, worth reading. Worth reading and it's education for everybody. And again, that classic thing, and we, we talked about this on the actual show, that you know, it's only ladies that go through the menopause. That's not Mm-mm. the case at all. Everybody's going through the menopause because as a man, although I won't officially go through the menopause, there is a slight male version of it. But obviously we're experiencing the menopause and that takes some managing. And we can have another little break for music. It's another request from yourself. What are we having now? We're having some James Brown. Awesome. I can't believe it. I know, I can't wait. So here we go, some James Brown. <laughs> I feel good. I knew that I would not. I feel good. I knew that I would not. Now, I've played Rihanna for a reason. We're talking about diversity today. And I've just been talking to Hannah here about the fact that Rihanna is actually the world's wealthiest musician and she is worth 1.4 billion. And I, d- I didn't know that. It's staggering, isn't it? Yeah. And she found her money, or she got her money, by being an entrepreneur, not from music. Beyonce's mm. worth about 540 million. Rihanna, 1.4 billion. Mm. And she got it from her makeup company for black women. Mm. So diversity and representation, like there's a lot that comes through around um, when you're a woman of colour, like where do you buy your tights, where do you buy your ballet shoes, where do you buy your foundation. Absolutely. Um, a lot of the beauty world, the fashion world is very much through a white lens. Yep. Now we've had a question in from Richard, uh, regular listener for you, Hannah. Okay, if you do want to message in, it's studio at radiobath.com or text bath followed by eight double O double one. And he says, and he, Richard is a, one of the volunteers which helps me out as well in the dancing world. He says, is there a way to deal with an out of control superior without just quitting and moving on? And in brackets, he has put not you, Richard, which I'm very pleased he's put that out there. So, Hannah. It's a great question. Um, one of the frameworks I use when I'm doing the training around courageous conversations is called Radical Candor. So Radical Candor is a book by um, an American author called Kim Scott. And the, the kind of the concept of Radical Candor is that we need to balance challenge with care. And she's got this matrix where you have an axis that is um, the challenge matrix, so the challenge axis, and one that is the care um, axis. So how I interpret that, and this might be a helpful um, lens for, for Richard, is that we need to challenge, but we need to challenge with care. And because we care, we're going to challenge. Okay. And I, I literally use that as a bit of a script when I'm running the training on it. The, there's an investment, isn't there, in that relationship? And before you quit, to have a very candid conversation with that colleague about the impact of what they're saying and doing on you 
Mm-hmm. They can choose to listen and choose to respond or they can choose to ignore. But at least you've vocalised it. If you've vocalised it and they choose to ignore it, I would then quit. I'd then, then go and find the right line manager or the right kind of culture. Yeah. But often we quit without having that opportunity to actually share. And it goes back to what I said earlier about feedback. Um, we might assume that everyone else is telling them about the impact of how they're leading, but no one's actually... Yeah, having that kind of conversation and I suppose the worst case scenario in that for you is that you quit anyway so you haven't really got a great deal to lose yeah and at least there is the gift of feedback mm. and they might learn something take that gift <laughs> <laughs> I had that done to me the other day literally that boy band moment of grabbing the, the air and dragging it towards you <laughs> take the gift of feedback and I was like that sounds very corporate very mm, American as well very American high five it all out <laughs> indeed so uh, you've got a couple of events coming up haven't you tonight even I have. So I'm new to the area. I only moved down in July um, and I spent the summer unpacking and getting sorted. But obviously things weren't normal in the summer because people are away. Um, And I'm a networker. I like connecting. I like meeting new people. So I was trying to find a leadership space for women leaders, women entrepreneurs, women business owners. And I couldn't find an existing network or not one that's currently live. So I've created my own. Okay. Um, That's how how Hannah rolls. Um, So tonight we have the launch of the Baines Women Leadership Network. It's a dinner series. um, And we are meeting in Bath for dinner. We've got a speaker. Um, It's going to be a a six-week cycle. We've got the next one in December. I've already got, hopefully, a speaker lined up for that one. Um, So if you're interested in that, feel free to go to my website, Hannah-Wilson. Drop me a message. Um, always looking for more people to join, but also potential speakers. Okay. And then on Saturday, I'm also hosting an event um, in Bristol. So with Diverse Educators, we used to host a lot of in-person events, but then we had the pandemic, so we went virtual. Um, And me wanting to network with local schools, local educators, we're hosting um, an event on Saturday um, at a school in South Bristol. We've got about 100 people coming um, who care about diversity, equity, inclusion in schools. We've got two keynotes, 25 workshops. It's only 40 quid. Amazing. Um, And we're going to be then launching off the back of that a hub. So every half term, there's an opportunity for school leaders and educators to come together to keep that conversation going. Now, you mentioned diverse educators there. Tell us more about that. So that's my training business. So um, we started off as a grassroots network. We're now a training provider. We run um, training sessions virtually and in person programs. I do a lot of keynotes, events. I've got a team of associates who specialise in different things. We're really just there as a resource to support schools and trusts and colleges in navigating their DEI journey. Okay, and there's also a community around that as well, isn't there? Massive community. So um, on Twitter, we've got about 15,000 followers, but we've got a mighty network community because quite often it feels quite... um, unsafe to talk about DEI on social media because it gets taken out of context yeah. you just need one person oh, to kind of yeah. go down a route and or then jump sudden, on one word in yeah. your tweet so we've a mighty network is a, a closed networking community and we've got a diverse educator space on mighty networks it's got about 2,000 people in there and everyone's there because they care about DEI because they work in schools okay. um, and on our website at the bottom of every page we've got um, links to all of our social media platforms so you can just um, request to join mighty networks from there we've also got a newsletter that goes out once a month there's lots of different ways to connect with us yeah that sounds amazing now you've also been um co-author of a number of different publications as mm-hmm. well haven't you so one of them which was quite close to my heart is what they didn't teach me in my pcge now i'm a dance teacher i'm not a school teacher um but i also teach other teachers how to teach mm-hmm. and i know as a trainer myself that it's really difficult to leave 
lots out and i'm like there's so much i could teach them but at the moment they're at they can't take it on board so you have to reduce the amount that you're teaching and i'm guessing that's what that book was about to some degree yeah sarah mullen um she's a friend and a contact of mine she curated that book and edited it and she just wanted to bring together advice from the system um about the things you like you wish you knew when you Mm. started trying to teach and i I was saying to you in the break like we often focus on the doing of teaching rather than the being of teaching and actually we have so many well-being issues within the education like how do we actually create space for those conversations so some of my bits in there were around simple things about how you can boost yourself and keep yourself going so i have this technique called the sunshine folder where whether it's a box or whether it's an inbox folder whenever you get positivity praise affirmation you file it okay that's nice so when you've got bottom set you bottom spot and set you eight on a friday afternoon it's raining and you're, you're questioning your ability to teach yeah you go and revisit it and you just remind yourself you are actually quite a decent teacher so just little little nuggets like that things that might just help you a believe in yourself but be actually stay in the sector as yeah. well because it's you know teaching is incredibly draining you know we've we've both discussed today we, we work quite hard and sometimes you feel a bit whew, like that and then to get up in front of a, a group of children can be even more draining mm, and the statistics are shocking so 36 percent of teachers leave after their third year right 50 percent by their fifth year okay so we tend to take teachers on burn them out let them go and then try to replace them so that that says again going back to the training of everything early on is that a we're asking too much mm-hmm. the, the, the learning curve is that cliff rather than walking up a, mm. a a steep hill um and also that it's something's not right somewhere mm. and uh, yeah how mm. do, how's that going to get changed though it's interesting comparing the uk education model to other countries around the world and, and like contact time's a massive issue the expectations on uk teachers about how much contact time we have with the children how much teaching time we have how little planning time we have Mm. when you compare that to other countries like china for example and they have a much lower contact ratio and they have a lot more time to plan and mark so then obviously takes money to then have more teachers to release you and we are cash strapped when it comes to the sector at the moment so it's a bit of a a double-edged sword it's really difficult i mean obviously teachers finish work at three o'clock in the afternoon and just go on the the beach that's that's all they do and have those facetious richard Richard, very facetious (laughs) the the irony is that that it is a really hot it is a really tough sector and i think it's so misrepresented that people do think it's nine till three and get 12 weeks off yes you get 12 weeks off i probably worked eight of those 12 weeks when i was actually spending 20 years working in the sector and you do need it i think the thing that most people don't understand is that um, mentally how draining it is to teach because when you're teaching you're always giving something of yourself Mm -hmm. and there's only so much that bucket can be filled um, Mm -hmm. just by having an evening off when you're marking Mm -hmm. um, and having a weekend off when you're doing school trips and all of those and and it's really difficult if you don't have that kind of shorter term of eight weeks or whatever it is and then have some time off you just burn yourself into the ground and then leave after three years yeah and i've really noticed a difference with my relationship with time off and my relationship with holidays since leaving that i was often on catch up or just hitting the couch for a few days or just going to go on holiday and like detach when i was a teacher whereas now i don't need that as much so i value my time off my holidays and i use that time much differently and i think the irony is a lot of educators hold themselves together for the term and then they're they've got flu for the whole of christmas or they're ill for the whole of easter so they're not not getting quality time off they're just recuperating to then hit the ground running again now i mentioned earlier about you know mental health and it's it's quite difficult to get the balance right but flex 
flexible flexible working especially for ladies who are on maternity leave or coming back um how do you feel about all of those so mental health and well-being has been a massive focus in education now for a few years the green paper was published i think five or six years ago now um and we've seen um concerted efforts to um, equip and enable and empower more educators to be mental health first aiders and to be trained on mental health and well-being um, and like one of the lenses I use around DEI work but also mental health work is that like we need to move things from being reactive to being proactive mm-hmm. and the mental health and well-being um, approach a while ago was very reactive it was always like putting plasters on the problems whereas what the Green Paper encouraged you to do is to flip it on its head and to think about actually what can we do to be preemptive, preventative preactive um, and and what's the universal offer, the kind of the toolkit we want all young people to have access to, as opposed to it just being a few who are at crisis points. So when I was ahead, we did a lot of work on mindfulness mm-hmm. and we trained all the young people on mindfulness. So they had skills as and when they did become anxious or stressed. It helped them to self-manage and self-regulate, as opposed to waiting for them to start self-harming in year nine, year ten, and then doing some mindfulness when it's almost too late. Yep. Absolutely. And there's simple things, you know, breathing exercises, mm-hmm. you know, spending a minute a day just taking 10 deep breaths. Mm-hmm. Everybody can afford a minute a day. Mm. Um, but do we do it? No. Well, no. And if I can just make a link between yeah, um, the mental health and wellbeing kind of agenda and diversity, equity, and inclusion, because often it's seen as being two separate parts of the school, but we have got to look at the intersect of the two. Because when we look at the data of who is the most susceptible or the most vulnerable when it comes to mental health and wellbeing, it's people who've got a protective characteristic. Mm. So during just after lockdown there was a publication by a charity called just like us and they're a charity who support young lgbtqi people um and the research and the data from lockdown was that the group who were the most vulnerable to mental ill health post-pandemic were young teenagers who identified as being lgbtqi but particularly who were also children of color right because for a lot of young people who are in that group school might be their safe space Mm. and for two years they were perhaps in environments which were quite hostile to their identity where they had to suppress and they couldn't express themselves and how that then manifests itself is through trauma and potentially through mental ill health so being aware that some of we're having a spike in in safeguarding mental health and well-being and child protection issues in schools and a lot of it is actually a lot of it, apologies She's for that. She's beating the microphone know, up again. my hands. Um, a lot of it is actually the wake um, of what happened during the pandemic. Fair enough. Well, we're going to have another little break for music. When we come back, it's the bit that they all dread. It's the quick fire da, round. Da, da. I know. We will find out, of course, what is going to be Hannah's favourite ice cream. <laughs> I've been here since 10 o'clock this morning, here for another 10 minutes with the lovely Hannah Wilson. Uh, Remind everybody very quickly, Hannah, about your website. Website, um, hannah-wilson.co.uk is the leadership coaching one and diverseeducators.co.uk is our DEI one. Fabulous. If you want to get into contact with Hannah, that's the best way to do it. It's our quick fire round, Hannah. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Everybody paps themselves, but you'll be absolutely fine. Right, first one. You know this one. What is your favourite ice cream? Salted caramel. That is a very good choice. Yeah, I love a bit of salted caramel. Mm -hmm. Are you tidy or messy? Very tidy. Very tidy. Okay. How do you feel about messy people then? 
Um, <laughs> I tidy them up. You tidy them up. <laughs> I have to say, I'm a combination. There's certain parts that I'm very tidy, and certain parts, as you may have noticed by my notes, not so much. I love a bit of colour coding, a bit of A to Z. There you go. Okay. So, if in your cupboard, so well, let's go to your food cupboard here. Okay, is everything kind of round the right way? Oh yeah, labels facing you. Labels facing you, and all of Handles that. Handles facing you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're one of those. <laughs> Love or hate roller coasters? Hate them. Hate them. Yeah, it's, that's kind of where most people sit. I hate fair rides. Okay. Roller coasters in particular. I think it's about being tall. I've had so many bad experiences on rides where I haven't felt safe. Okay. Yeah, because you are, for those who missed earlier, you're, you're six foot one, is six that right? Six foot one, indeed. Which is very similar height to me if I was wearing <laughs> five inch heels. Cubans. Yeah. <laughs> for those who aren't aware, I'm five foot nine, which is average height, and I state mm-hmm. that many, many times. Um, do you hang your toilet roll over the front or round the back? Oh, God, that's a good question. Oh, I these are I'm, highly deep. These I think it's front. You think it's front. You're now having to picture your toilet, aren't you? I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not particular about that. See, now, if you were a tidy person, you'd know exactly which way it was going round, <laughs> you see. There is a patent, apparently, where it should be round the front, oh, just really? to let you know. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you eat your chocolate from the fridge or from the cupboard? Fridge. Fridge. Why the fridge, then? I don't like it when it's sticky. Okay. Fair I like enough. cold chocolate. You like mm-hmm. cold chocolate. I'm with you on that one. Mm-hmm. That's it. Absolutely. Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but let's ask it anyway. Do you make your bed in the morning? Absolutely. And follow-up question is always, it always pains me, do you have any cushions on your bed? Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Just the two, though. Okay. I'm not one of those people who have, like, 24 cushions. No. Um, I can't think what film that was where the guy was trying to get her into bed and he had to, like, carefully <laughs> remove all the, all the cushions off the bed and then the moment had gone. And that's it. The, the mood has changed. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's throwing me at the moment. So we, I make our bed every morning and we have six cushions normally on our bed. I think our seven-year-old has taken some of the cushions away somewhere and therefore it's throwing me slightly. We have our two main big cushions and then one other cushion and I'm making that I'm like it's not symmetrical and I, I don't like cushions in the first place but at least make them symmetrical but there we go right what is your favourite breakfast Marmite on toast Marmite on toast a Marmite lover I love Marmite I haven't had Marmite on toast I, as an answer I love Marmite I do too yeah, on, on brown toast on brown toast granary mm-hmm. okay Yum. Which which type? I don't, don't mind as you long as it's brown. As long oh. as it's brown, okay. As long as you're not saying. And I take marmite like it's tar. Like it's not just a little bit of marmite. I need a lot of marmite. I had an issue with marmite not that long ago. I think they. I don't know whether they changed the recipe or something, but there was definitely a period where it didn't spread. Oh no! And I've got a few jars at home, and there was like one jar that, <laughs> and I just kept not using that until the other ones were were used. I love it. But yeah, marmite's good, and you can use marmite if you want to wear it in spaghetti bolognese. My mum uses marmite for a lot yeah, of sauces. Absolutely. Mm. Um, if you had to, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, that's a good question. See, I'm, I'm really not a karaoke singer that's okay. at all. Um, the song, like, this is a bizarre family song, but Love Shack. Okay, b 52 I know the lyrics to that. Okay. I, can, I can scream that one. Do you know the lyrics when it goes really quiet towards Tim. the end? Rusty. It is. Well done, you. Yeah, Tin <laughs> Roof. Rusty, for those that want to know mm-hmm. what she's screaming at the end. Mm-hmm. I had to look that one up. I really did. But yeah, great track. And follow up, are you going to give us a quick belt now? No. No. Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> Favourite TV programme or film? Oh, okay. Mm. I, I'm very current about what I'm currently watching. Um, I'm, I'm watching the new series of Top Boy at the moment. Top Boy. Top Boy, which is on Netflix. I've not heard of that one. Um, what type of programs are them? Drama, gang culture in, in London. Okay. Um, 
bit violent. Quite enjoy that. Don't know why. Um, and favorite film? Another weird one. I've I, I really enjoyed Shawshank Redemption. Who doesn't? I know, but it's quite a weird one to yeah, enjoy. Amazing. And again, going back to our billionaires, Oprah Winfrey was uh, incredible in that as well. Mm. She's another billionaire. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Well so, uh, yeah, incredible. Right, we're getting a bit deeper now. Two questions to go for you, Hannah. Okay, if you came back in your next life as an animal, which one would it be and why? Now, before you answer cat, okay, anything but cat. No, not a cat. <laughs> not a cat. That's all right, then. So I've got two. Go on, then. Um, my my first answer would have been a dolphin, but I think an elephant. Okay, mm. Talk, tell me why dolphin or elephant? Well, dolphins are, are curious and chatty, and I think my personality. Um, but I love um, the kind of the, the wisdom of of the elephant community, but also they're quite matriarchal. Ah, what a lovely answer! Mm. So a dolphin or an elephant, like that. Slightly different. And your very last question, Hannah: Where is your happy place? The beach. The beach. Mm. Okay, why the beach? Is there a particular one? Um, I grew up in North Devon. Um, we've got a beautiful coastline in North Devon. Okay. And Saunton Sands is my favourite beach. Um, and our favourite family beach for going on walks and stuff. It's just beautiful. Um, I just, I love being on the coast. And I love like, the sky, the sea, the sand. I just find it very peaceful. Absolutely amazing. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on A Story to Tell today. I hope you've enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been fascinating chatting to you for the last couple of hours. And uh, no doubt we'll get you back in soon. Remind everybody very quickly what your website is. So Hannah-Wilson or diverseeducators.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Steph's up next after midday. I keep on falling in love with you. Sometimes. 